Well, thank you, Michael, and uh, uh, good morning to all of you. It's good to be with you this morning. Um, it, there's certainly something quite different to uh, speaking to a screen, which I seem to have been doing a lot of over the past few months. I'm sure many of you have as well. Uh, it's certainly quite different to, to get to, to stand and there are actual real people uh, out, out there. I'm assuming you're all real people, and if you move slightly during the, the morning, I'll, I'll know that you're not just, you're not just cardboard cutouts. But it is good to be with you, and uh, thank you for the, the invitation and for the, for the welcome. And it's also good, I, I'm particularly excited to, to be able to be part of this uh, little series on Travelling Mercies. Um, I've been spending, just on some work of my own uh, over the past little while, I've been spending quite a lot of time in the company of Moses and recently of Joshua as well. So um, I'm quite uh, excited to be able to, to spend a little bit of time uh, reflecting on some of these stories with you both this week and next week. The overall series title is Travelling Mercies. You, you knew that already. Um, and it's focusing on these, six, uh, these, these several chapters from Exodus uh, 16 through Exodus 20, the journey that the people of Israel make with Moses, um, having left Egypt, crossed the Red Sea, and, and journeying to Sinai, where God will give them the law and establish his covenant with them. So up until this point, we're going to be looking this, we're going to be looking this morning at uh, an incident in chapter 17. And up until this point, God has not only rescued uh, the people from Egypt um, and, and delivered them through the Red Sea, but he's also miraculously been providing them uh, with food and water. And uh, those are some of the episodes that you will already have looked at in the past couple of weeks. And you'll also have realized that not only is the, is the, is the food and water theme uh, a reflection of the faithfulness of God and providing for the people. But you'll know that as well, in the background, uh, there's considerable grumbling and complaining, uh, which actually, sadly, is, is a theme that runs uh, through uh, for quite some, quite some time in, into, the, into the future of their story. And you still find it when you come to the book of Numbers. Um, so the grumbling and complaining. But despite that, the faithfulness of God and providing for them. And where we're going to pick up the story is in Exodus 17, verse 8. Uh, and up until this point, having faced the hazards of hunger and thirst, but seeing God provide for them, Israel now faces an attack from hostile neighbours, uh, specifically uh, the people of Amalek. So I'm going to read from verse 8 in chapter 17. If you have your Bible and want to follow along, I'm not sure if it's going to be on the screen. I think for those who are... Uh, on the live stream it'll be, it'll be available, but uh, otherwise you'll need to track along in your Bible or just listen. So verse 8. The Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. Moses said to Joshua, choose some of our men and go out to fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered, and Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. When Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. Aaron and Hur held his hands up, one on one side and one on the other so that his hands remained steady till sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. 
Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this on a scroll as something to be remembered and make sure that Joshua hears it because I will completely blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an altar and called it The Lord is My Banner. He said, For hands were lifted up to the throne of the Lord. The Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. And may God bless his his word to us as we reflect on it this morning. So the story of this um, incident with the Amalekites is is really, I want you to to think of it really as a story of two weapons. Uh, One weapon is fairly conventional, certainly at the time, in terms of battle, and it's a sword. The other weapon is very unconventional. It's a staff, the kind of thing that a shepherd would have carried around uh, with him in, in his responsibilities of shepherding the flock. The sword is in the hand of Joshua, who's leading the army, and the staff is in the hands of Moses, who goes to the top of a hill and holds out the staff. Now, if you were a military historian, studying military history, military strategy, and so on, no doubt you would come to this story and your particular interest would be in the sword bit of the episode. And you'd probably want information, some of which, well, very, very little of which you, you would find in, in the story. For example, uh, we, we don't know how many soldiers Joshua had with him when he engaged the Amalekites. We don't even know how many people came with Amalek to fight against the Israelites. We don't know what kind of tactics uh, either side uh, involved. We know a little bit about the Amalekites, a little bit we discover uh, later in in the book of Deuteronomy, but we don't know what sort of tactics Joshua was using in order to counter them or to overcome them. Uh, We aren't given any information about casualties. How many casualties were there on Amalek's side? How many casualties were there on Israel's side? So as a military historian, you would come to this story And you would think, well, the pieces of information that I'm most interested in, well, they're not really here. On the other hand, the text gives us a very interesting picture that doesn't focus on military tactics. And while when you come to verse 13, uh, we're told that Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword, the way the story is told makes it very clear that the secret of Joshua's victory, even though he has his sword with him, the secret of his victory is actually not what was happening on the battlefield with the sword, but the secret of the victory was, was what was happening on the top of the hill with the staff. The story of Amalek uh, is, is really, this, this episode with Amalek is, is really the, the, the start of a thread that runs through quite a bit of biblical narrative. Uh, Amalek, from what we know in other parts of the Old Testament, uh, the, the character Amalek originally was a descendant of Esau. He was Esau's grandson. Therefore, the Amalekites were actually like distant cousins of the Israelites. Which raises the question of why did they want to attack them in the way that they did? Uh, was it old uh, family and interfamily rivalries? Is that what was going on? Or was it just simply a question of territory? And here was a fairly large group of people who'd come out of Egypt and, and were a bit too close to the Amalek- Amalekite territory for, for comfort. And so the Amalekites wanted to try to um, Im- impose a bit of a warning on them. 
there's the incident that happens here. Um, the, as I said, the thread continues when you come to Numbers chapter 14. Uh, and it's, the, it's just after the incident of the spies, where Joshua also, also uh, appears. But in, in Numbers chapter 14, the Amalekites defeat the Israelites. They're still around uh, over 40 years later, some 40 years later, they're still around in, in the book of Judges, both in chapter 3 of Judges and chapter 6 of Judges. They're still around at the early, in the early stages of the monarchy. When Saul becomes king, one of the responsibilities that Saul is given in 1 Samuel chapter 15 is to destroy the Amalekites. And it's his failure to do that properly that actually uh, is part of why he ends up losing the throne. David, in his turn, fought against them. And there's a reference in 1 Chronicles chapter 4 to some of the people from the tribe of Simeon uh, who subdued the remnant of the Ammonites, or the, the, the remnant of the Am- Amalekites. So, it's part, part of why this story is here in Scripture for us is, is to introduce us to these people and to this thread of opposition that's going to run uh, for, for, several, uh, for several decades, several generations. But in terms of the detail of it, we're told that it was the, they were at, uh, the Israelites were at Rephidim when Amalek came and attacked them. That's in verse 8. Rephidim refers back to the first few verses of the chapter where uh, there was a problem with water. But we're also given other information in Deuteronomy chapter 25 about the nature of this attack. And we're told there that Amalek has been uh, really seen an opportunity in attacking Israel. Uh, while Israel is worried about water, they're tired from the extent of the journey that they've already traveled. They're, they're, they're weary and worn out, says Deuteronomy chapter 25. And apparently the particular focus of the attack on Israel was the stragglers, so presumably uh, people that we've come to think of in in recent months of the vulnerable, the at-risk, the elderly, the weak, and and so on. And Amalek focuses on them. So the time when the the whole people are weary, the whole people are running out of energy, Amalek attacks the stragglers. And that's where the sword and the staff come into play. We'll think about the sword a little bit, and we'll think about Joshua. Uh, because it's Joshua that Moses designates as the leader of whatever size of, of military force they have at this point to go and fight Amalek. Now, this is the first mention of Joshua in the Old Testament. And again, most of you will be familiar with, with uh, your, your Old Testament and some of the major parts of, of the biblical story. Uh, and you'll know that Joshua goes on eventually to replace Moses and to become a, the, the leader of the nation. And I think probably there's a hint that that's going to happen. Uh, when, when you come to verse 14 in the story, the Lord said to Moses, write it on the scroll as something to be remembered, and make sure that Joshua hears it. Joshua's going to have to keep this in, in mind, uh, this, this business of, of the Amaleks. And perhaps there's a hint of his future, of his future leadership. We know from elsewhere that he was originally called Hoshea, which means salvation. His name was changed by Moses to Joshua, which means the Lord is salvation. Uh, and it's really an Old Testament uh, form of, of the word Jesus that, we, that we're very familiar with in the, in the New Testament. We know also that he's Moses' assistant, uh, that he gets to spend a lot of time with Moses. And we know also that he's one of the spies who is sent by Moses to scout out the land of Canaan. Now, from what we can work out, there's probably about, I would say, probably 35 years 
between Moses and Joshua. At this point in the story, Moses is 80. Joshua is probably about 45, same age as, as his friend Caleb. So there's about 40 years, uh, almost 40 years between them. And I think it's interesting to set the two of them together and to set the, the, the stories of, of the two men together. And there are questions that you, that you might want to think about. For example, Moses just suddenly says to Joshua, Joshua, I want you to go and lead the army against the Amalekites. Why Joshua? Why not somebody else? Was Joshua already doing some, uh, had he already been involved in some uh, military activities? Why did he choose him? Um, were, were there other reasons? Were there things that Moses had seen in Joshua that made him think, well, Joshua is going to be the best man to lead the army? And beyond that, he didn't just choose him to, to go and lead the army in this instance, but he, he chose him to become his assistant. And that meant, for example, that Joshua would uh, go up Mount Sinai with Moses when Moses was going to receive the law. It meant that during Moses' period of, of leadership, those times that Moses went outside of the camp to the tent of meeting and at very special times of friendship with God, where God spoke to him, Joshua was, was around all of that. It seems in some ways that he perhaps even guarded the tent of meeting when Moses went back into the camp to be with the people. And it's fascinating, I think, to spend a little bit of time looking at the various experiences that Joshua goes through that are all part of this 40-year journey that are preparing, this 40 years that are preparing him to replace Moses and become a leader uh, of the people of Israel. Now, if you'll permit me to go off a little bit of a tangent, something I've been thinking about recently is, in, in, relation, to, is in, in relation to all of this is, what would you look for in someone who perhaps you thought would be a future leader? We don't know what Moses looked for in Joshua. But if you're in that situation and, and you're, you're looking around and thinking, do you know, there's somebody who I think could be a future leader in some sphere or other. What would be some of the things that you might look for? Would you look for somebody who was a real visionary? Would you look for somebody who, like Joshua, I think, was very dependable, was loyal? I think Joshua was very loyal to Moses. Would you look for uh, somebody who maybe had a charismatic personality? Interesting things to, to think about. Um, in some of the work that I've been doing on the story of Moses and, and the, the, the story of Joshua along with that, um, I was thinking about this question and I had a conversation with a friend of mine who's a retired Church of Ireland bishop. And he very kindly went off. I asked, asked him the question, you know, what, from your experience, what would you have been looking for uh, in, in emerging leaders and young leaders who are coming forward? And he went off and came up with a list of about ten things. I'll give you a few of the things that he said. He said, well, one would be that they'd be teachable. Another would be that they have a passion for Christ. Another would be humility. Another would be their ability to make things happen, which is an interesting one. Another would be their ability to communicate. Interesting. And, and, and I've realized I'm just maybe starting a, a sequence of thought that some of the rest of you will want to, to think a little, bit, a little bit more about. Uh, in some ways, as a church, you've been through this in the past couple of years. Because you've been looking around and saying, who would God be, who would God be putting his hand on to appoint 
to come here and to be the shepherd of, to, to, to help to shepherd uh, this particular group of, of God's people here in Gilnerhurt Baptist. And obviously, as you came across Drew, there were certain things that you knew about him that, that you thought, yep, we, 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 think those are, we think those are significant. I'll tell you what I've come to think is one of the most significant characteristics. Not the only one, but one of the most significant characteristics of a leader uh, or someone with, with potential to become a leader. And, and I agree with my bishop friend, it's teachability. It's not somebody who comes along and presents himself that they already know everything and they have nothing more to learn. It's someone who comes along in a posture and says, you know what, I've got things to learn. I'm open to being taught. And I was thinking about this again just a, few, just a few weeks ago. I was thinking about this and I'd been asked, I'd been asked to do a, a Zoom meeting for a, a leadership development uh, course that was being run on, uh, via, via Zoom online. And when, when the thing had finished, <clears throat> and I'd shared a little bit with the group, and they'd had group activities and so on, and when the thing had finished, the young leader who had organized the whole thing, um, he, he stayed online for a little bit, and we had, a, we had a little bit of a further conversation. And he, he had a question for me, and his question was this. Basically, he wanted to know how could he leave space where he could hear the voices of people who don't agree with him. Now, he, he works in a, in a leadership role. I think he's doing a very good job in his leadership role, which means that a lot of what he hears is very affirming and it's very positive. I don't know about you, but I, I think if that, if that was me and I was getting lots of positive affirmation for my leadership, I would, I'd be pretty happy with that and say, oh, oh well, that, that's great, we'll just leave it at that. But he was saying, no, I don't only want to hear those things. I want to hear things that will challenge me from people that don't agree with me or people who maybe have a completely different vision of things from, my, from, from the vision that I have. And I thought, wow, isn't that, isn't that amazing? That's teachability. Now, I realize we've got a little bit far away from, from, from Joshua, but there was something about Joshua, obviously, that Moses chose this man. He became his assistant. And in that assistantship, he, he, he really, I think, came to an understanding of what it meant that the Lord was with Moses. And when it came to Joshua's time eventually to lead, and the Lord said to him, as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. He had 40 years that he could draw on. 40 years of experiences of seeing how the Lord was with Moses. And he in his turn was able to lead. You know, I think when Moses came towards the end of his leadership story, I, I think um, it was painful for him in ways. You know, one of the things about leadership is that it's a, it's a temporary assignment. And that's true if it's in a church context. It's true if you are a leader in a business context, if you lead in a school, if you are responsible for a department in the organization that you work for. Leadership is always a temporary assignment. And it's not always easy to give it up. And you get Moses in the book of Deuteronomy, you get Moses and he's saying with God, oh, I, you've only begun to show, me the, to show me your power and your ways. Please let me see this land of promise. And God's very firm with Moses and says, Moses, that's enough. 
we're not going to talk about this anymore. I'll let you go up, the, I'll let you go up and, and, and you can see the land. But once that's happened, that's enough. No more talk. I then want you to go and I want you to encourage Joshua. And you wonder how difficult that may have been for Moses to realize that his own leadership was coming to an end. And from now on, his focus was going to be on encouraging the person who would step into his shoes behind him. So Joshua, uh, Moses' assistant, leader of the army, gets this opportunity to to lead the army and and see God at work. All part of his preparation for where he would would, uh, eventually be, be be the leader of the people. The battle itself it's very much up and down. It's a seesaw type of a thing. Uh, one minute Israel is prevailing. Joshua saying, this is great, we're winning here. And then the next minute Amalek is prevailing. And maybe Joshua's thinking, oh, what, what's, what's going on here? Why is this going against us? And the answer then is not in the sword, but in the staff. And that takes us to Moses. And Moses, uh, who's gone up the hill, to the top of the hill, verse 9, he says, and he's gone there with the, the staff of God in his hand. Now, here's the thing you need to really notice about this story. The outcome of the battle was ultimately dependent not on what was happening on the battlefield, but on what was happening at the top of the hill. So the outcome of the battle wasn't ultimately dependent on what was happening on the battlefield. It was ultimately dependent on what was happening at the top of the hill. Moses had gone to the top of the hill with the staff of God. And as long as he held out the staff in his hand, (coughs) Israel prevailed. When his arms began to get tired and he dropped them, Israel was being defeated because Amalek was prevailing. Uh, you may want to, I'm not going to ask you to do it now, you know, it might, it might uh, interfere with social distance and so on. But try this when you go home. Take an umbrella. Some of you younger people, take an umbrella. And just stand and hold it up in your right hand, like that. Hold it up as long as you can. See if you can manage an hour. Uh, see if you can manage all day. You know, you're allowed, if, if your right hand gets a bit tired, you can hold it up in your left hand. But see how long you can manage that. Moses needed to hold up the staff of God all day. Uh, it, it, happened, it was, it was all, all day. His hands remained steady till sunset. Now, we'll see how he was able to do it just before, we fi- just before we finish. But I want us to think a little bit about this staff of God. What is this? Well, it's the second time that it's been specifically mentioned. The first time is in Exodus chapter 4, verse 20. And the context seems to indicate that the staff of God is simply Moses' staff, the staff that he would have had as a shepherd. uh, And it's a staff that God says to him in that that amazing encounter where God is calling him and Moses is making all the excuses of the day to try to prevent, to try to avoid having to do what God wants him to do. And God says to Moses, Moses, throw the staff on the ground. What's that in your hand? He says, it's a staff, throw it in the ground. Throws it in the ground. And it turns into a snake, grabs it by the tail, and it turns into a staff again. And it's really interesting, again, this is an afternoon activity for you, to go through the book of Exodus and see the number of times that the staff is referred to. Sometimes the text talks about the staff of Moses, sometimes it talks about the staff of Aaron, and sometimes it talks about the staff of God. 
But one of the things that you notice here, and there's a couple of, there's a couple of principles that I want to try to draw out of this. One of the things that you notice about this is that God takes something that's very ordinary and transforms it so that it becomes completely extraordinary. That staff that Moses had was just an ordinary object. And yet there comes a time when Moses is able to stand uh, by the edge of the Red Sea and and hold, hold out his hand with the staff in it and the waters are divided as God sends a wind and the people are able to go through in the dry land. It's that staff that God is able to ta- or Moses is able to take in his hand uh, and he's able to, to, to strike the rock. In the first part of chapter 17, strikes the rock and water comes out. And here as he stands and holds up the staff at the top of the hill, Israel somehow prevails. And when his arms get tired and he begins to lower his hand and the staff is lowered, Amalek prevails. It's extraordinary. And yet it was such an ordinary thing. And I think there's a, there's a theme that you see in various parts of Scripture that tells us something about how God likes to work. God likes to take what is ordinary and transform it so that it's extraordinary. And again and again, You see in the Bible that God is well able to take something that's regarded as ordinary or something that's even regarded maybe as insignificant and use it to demonstrate his power. Sometimes it's objects, sometimes it's people. The staff of Moses that's transformed becomes the staff of God. Think about the New Testament and the ministry of Jesus and and the, the crowd of thousands that had nothing to eat until A little guy comes along and he's got five loaves and he's got two fish. Insignificant. It's probably a reasonable meal for a little boy, I would imagine, a reasonable lunch. But among thousands, and yet when he gives it to Jesus, what is ordinary and relatively insignificant is transformed to the point that thousands are fed and there are basketfuls of bread left over afterwards. You think about how Paul talks about his ministry and the the ministry of the gospel. And he talks about treasure in jars of clay. Jars of clay are ordinary. They're also very fragile. It doesn't take much to drop them and break them. And yet it's jars of clay into which God has put treasure, the treasure of the gospel. Ordinary people with all of their weaknesses, with all of their frailties with all of their vulnerabilities even with their brokenness and God takes such people and puts within them the treasure of the of the knowledge of himself through Christ treasure in jars of clay and of course Paul says isn't isn't it true he writes for in, in 1 Corinthians he writes there and says look look among yourselves not many wise not many mighty And yet God has chosen the foolish to confound the wise. He's chosen the weak. In terms of how people in the culture would view it, he's chosen the weak to confound the strong. The ordinary, the insignificant, but confound the powerful, the mighty. 
and they've become instruments that are extraordinary in the hands of God. I think even in the story of Exodus, you go right back to Exodus chapter 1 and the whole setting of the scene where Israel are, are suffering as slaves. There's getting a bit too many of them and Pharaoh decides he wants to do something about it. And so the midwives are told that when a child has been born, if it's a little girl, she can live. If it's a boy, they've got to kill them. The midwives don't do it because they fear God more than they fear Pharaoh. The interesting detail, we're not given this, in the book of Exodus, we're not given the specific name of the Pharaoh. We are given the names of the two midwives, Chipra and Pua. They're remembered. And God uses them, ordinary people, to defy this powerful, powerful man, this powerful Pharaoh. Someone has said this, and I'm just going to read it uh, to you. Um, Someone said that while history focuses on victors and the powerful, people at the top and in charge, the Bible pays an astonishing amount of attention to regular, normal folk who are nevertheless the unexpected means of God's dramatic work. You know, that's how history goes, isn't it? You look at the most powerful people, the most obvious people. And yet, God is working through the ordinary and the often insignificant to achieve his purposes. Staff, an ordinary staff. And the the whole outcome of this battle depends on whether that staff is being held out over the battlefield. Why is that? It's because the staff that Moses carried around with him becomes the means through which God's power is brought to play on a situation. You see it with the plagues. You see it with the Red Sea. You see it with the water that comes out of the rock. This becomes the means through which God's power begins to work in the situation of God's people. And there's a pointer then to it for us, isn't there? A pointer that we go beyond what's happening in the battle with the sword on the ground and a pointer to the realization that there's something spiritual, there's something supernatural that is is at work here. This is not simply Amalek attacking the stragglers of Israel. This is an assault on God himself. And I think that's probably what the, the reference in verse 16 means. Uh, it's, it's, very, it's, enigma, it's a little enigmatic. Uh, it says, therefore, hands were lifted up to the throne of the Lord. And it could mean hands are lifted up to the throne of the Lord like the hands of Moses are lifted up in an appeal to God to help them. I think maybe, it, 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 certainly the way, I, the way I lean is maybe to see it, it's more the hand of Amalek is lifted up in defiance of God. And I think that's borne out by the reference in Deuteronomy chapter 25, which says they, they attacked you when you were weary. They attacked the, the weak and the stragglers. They did not fear God. This is a defiance, not of Israel, but this is a defiance of God. And this is why the Lord then says, I am going to make sure that I stand against Amalek and I fight against Amalek from generation to generation. This is a spiritual thing. Word has gone out among the surrounding nations. I don't know how long it took and how quickly Amalek found out. But we know that certainly within a year, uh, within less than a year, 
Surrounding nations knew what had happened in Egypt. They knew that the Lord had acted in bringing these people out. And they then had to decide what they were going to do about it. Amalek said, you know what? We're going to fight. We do not fear God. And so they took God on. This was a spiritual battle. And in a spiritual battle, well, the sword had its part to play. There was something for the human warriors. There was a battle for the human warriors to fight. But the secret was in Moses' appeal to the power of God. Doesn't this remind you of Ephesians 6? We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but we wrestle against spiritual forces. Or Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10 verse 4, The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. And this is a call to us, is it not? A call to us to realize that as we, as we live our lives, as we, as we seek to, to work for God and witness for God, the secret to success is going to be the measure in which God's power is at work in us. And doesn't that make sense then for us? Maybe to be a little bit like Moses and said, you know what, I'm going to get up the hill and I'm going to hold out the staff because it's the power of God that is going to make the difference. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. There's a sword and there's a staff. Joshua has his part to play in leading the army, but the secret of the victory here is that Moses is appealing to and calling down the power of God into the situation. And I think that is the challenge for us. Just a couple of little details and then I'm done. Remember that thing? And I saw there's actually one, one guy in the, in, the, in, the, in the congregation among you and he's been trying a little bit with his arm to see how long he can keep his arm up. I think he gave up after just a couple of minutes. Uh, but, you know, the arms get tired. So you can imagine Moses and he goes up there and he, got the fir- he takes, his, he takes the, his right arm first, let's say, holds up the staff. And I, I, I don't know. I mean, I haven't experimented. You know, probably, I would imagine 10 minutes. Probably, and I mean, Moses was 80 years old. Uh, so maybe 10 minutes and then he thinks, oh, this is tough. Try my left hand. Tries the left hand and, and, and that's, that's another 10 minutes. This is, this is going to be tough if he's got to go all the way through till, till sunset. I imagine his arms are getting tired. And that's where his two friends, Moses, Aaron rather, Aaron and Hur, come into play. They're two of the other, Aaron is, is Moses' brother. Some people think that Hur may have been the, the husband of Miriam. Uh, I don't think that we can be sure about that. But he seems to be one of the, the close circle of leaders in the early stages uh, of, of, this, of this journey. And they come alongside, and Moses gets a stone. They get a stone for him. They put it under him, and he sits on it. And he's got his arms up. And one of them is on one side, and the other is on the other. And they manage to prop him up and to prop up his arms all the way through the rest of the day. I would imagine the next day he probably had a bit of muscle ache in his shoulders uh, after, after all of that. But they, they kept his arms up. And how important was it? I find it, 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 it's actually amazing, isn't it? The power of God is so extraordinary in this story. 
that when the staff is upheld, there's no question about who's going to win the battle. But, but yet it, it, it almost depends on the frailty of a, of, a, of, a, of a man whose arms get tired and who needs to be propped up and supported by his colleagues. I think we realize, don't we, that often we don't really quite do so well on our own. I think one of the things of the past several months has been how many people maybe feel a sense of isolation. It's harder to live life in isolation. It's harder to serve God in isolation. We need to encourage one another and support one another as as we go through that. And then finally, let me just say this. We don't look to a man called Moses who's standing up the top of a hill with his staff in his hand. But in our own turn, we can also look up. Not to a hill with Moses on it, but we can look up and we can see Jesus. Not on a hill, but at the right hand of God. That's how the New Testament describes him. At the right hand of God in the presence of God. He's there because his work of atonement is complete and our forgiveness is secure. He's there because it's a place of exaltation and majesty. And he's there wonderfully for us to intercede. And so maybe even in this old story of Moses and Joshua and Amalek, maybe even in that, there's just that realization, you know, We've got our brothers and sisters to encourage us and that we can encourage. But ultimately we have Jesus at the right hand of God making intercession for us. God bless his word to us this morning.